Big stories, big guests, the big picture. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge. Weekdays 1230 to 3, 770 CHQR. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Rob Breckenridge. On today's episode, Alberta's finance minister addresses some of the controversial and confusing changes in the UCP's first budget. Policy analyst Mark Milkey on why milk is so much more expensive in Canada than it is in the U.S. Plus, Calgary's small businesses continue to suffer as a result of the city's property tax mess. So the Alberta budget came down last Thursday. Like any budget, obviously, there's, there's a lot of detail. There's a lot to unpack. Now, on top of that, we've got uh, yesterday the Alberta government bringing in two uh, pieces of omnibus legislation that contain uh, some of the changes introduced in the budget, Bills 20 and 21. Uh, so that, that adds a little more complexity, I suppose, to all of this. Now, one of the areas, too, and I wanted to get some clarity on, is the Alberta Lottery Fund, which has existed for some time. Uh, VLT, the lottery and gaming revenues, go into this fund. That fund then uh, disperses those monies to various community organizations across the province. Uh, that is going to end. That money is going to go into general revenue. Does that mean that these groups are no longer going to receive that? Or are they just going to receive that in a different way? So I wanted to get some clarity on that and maybe some clarity on some other matters pertaining to the budget itself. And we welcome into the conversation here this afternoon, Alberta's Minister of Finance and President of the Treasury Board, Travis Taves. Minister, thank you for joining us here today. Welcome to the program. Oh, well, my pleasure. Thanks, Rob. Well, and we can get into some of these, these other details, but I do want to get some clarity about the uh, Alberta Lottery Fund, why that is being canceled, what it means for the organizations that have previously uh, received money through that, through that uh, fund. Sure, that, that's a great question. Um, rolling up the actual or dissolving the, the lottery fund was really, is really just part of uh, a greater effort to streamline uh, the way government operates, um, ultimately by by uh, dissolving this actual fund itself, uh, we will uh, there'll be efficiencies, particularly in the in the way that we're able to manage our cash as a government. And there's a number, you know, a few other funds that we're rolling up, and uh, and that will lead to about 13 million dollars of, of debt servicing cost savings for Albertans. Now, here's uh, here's the important uh, piece. There will be no changes um, to charities, um, no no negative effect whatsoever to charities that have depended on lottery funds uh, to support their efforts. Um, all of the um, the process and function will remain the same, and uh, and these lottery funds can continue to provide our charities and community groups um, with great support. So this, these these dollars are going to go through uh, various ministries now. Well, the, the funds will come uh, to Treasury Board and Finance uh, directly to our general revenue fund. However, uh, again, uh, charities will, in the in the same way, be able to um, work casinos and uh, and in, and engage in in activities, receive funding um, from these lottery funds, and they their support will not be reduced at all with wrapping up the fund. Again, wrapping up the fund was simply uh, a part of a greater effort to evaluate government process and everywhere uh, where it makes sense. We've been um, smoothing out or improving the process to improve efficiencies, improve reporting processes, and uh, and better manage our cash. Uh, cash management can have a great effect on our debt servicing costs. And again, as I mentioned earlier, um, by, uh, stream, uh, by 
dissolving this fund and a few additional funds, we will be uh, saving about $13 million a year for Alberta taxpayers without affecting um, charities uh, in in negative way at all. Well, how, how does that realize savings then for us? Well, it, what happened with the lottery fund, it required a significant amount of cash to be tied up and set aside. And that cash sat there, those funds sat there, uh, removed from... Um, the ability for government to overall manage manage that cash within its a greater cash management plan. And as a result of that, and again, it's not just this fund, there was uh, some other funds as well. As a result of of, um, of streamlining, uh, we will save $13 million mm-hmm. in debt service costs. Yeah, you have an op-ed in the Calgary Herald today. Um clearing up what you would you suggest are maybe misconceptions about this budget. Do you, do you think that, that Albertans are misunderstanding uh, a lot of these changes? You know, I think, I think uh, mostly Albert, Albertans are understanding uh, this budget. We were elected um, to uh, bring responsibility to um, Alberta's finances to balance the budget in our first term. Uh, and this budget accomplishes that and, and accomplishes it in, in a credible manner. And, uh, and we're, we were able to do it by uh, only reducing operating expenditures by 2.8% over, uh, over four years. So it was, uh, you know, it was a measured, thoughtful budget uh, that gets us to balance in a credible way, but that really maintains um, frontline services, and particularly um, services that protect our most vulnerable on, on the revenue side, um, you, you, you point out in your op-ed, or, or you reject the idea that there's tax increases in this budget. There is $300 million in revenue resulting from what's known as bracket creep, ending the indexation uh, on tax rates. You, you don't see that as, as a tax increase? Well, well ultimately, um, uh, Albertans will be paying uh, the same amount of provincial tax provided their revenue doesn't change, their income doesn't change. Uh, in, in 2020 and 2021, as they did in 2019, uh, by de-indexing. Now, ultimately, in the event um, personal exemptions um, were continued to be indexed, they would actually paying a, be paying a little bit of less in, uh, or a little lower income tax amounts in those future years. But by freezing indexation, they'll be paying the same amount uh, that way they are in 2019. So from that standpoint, certainly in... in uh, in dollar terms, uh, the way it directly affects uh, Albertans' uh, pocketbooks, they won't be paying any more income tax. Well, well, who's paying the $300 million? And Where's that revenue coming from? It's coming from taxpayers then, isn't it? Well, that, that would have been, again, that, uh, that would have been uh, additional tax uh, reductions had indexing gone forward. So personal um, Albertans, uh, when they would have filed their personal tax returns, would have actually been paying less tax um, in in turn in, in dollar value, less tax in future years had indexing be, been left in place. We're freezing indexing, which will mean that Albertans uh, will be paying the identical amount of provincial income tax in the next uh, year or two if their income remains the same as they have in 2019. But some will obviously be paying more if there's if there's new revenue associated with this change. It's it's coming from somebody. Well, th- this is uh, the the additional. Um, the, the additional revenue that's derived from this effort is really, um, r- really a revenue that we wouldn't have received um, had indexing continued, but it is not the result of um, Albertans, any individual Albertans actually 
uh, paying any more income tax in future years than they do in 2019. And also, let me ask you about another number that's been thrown around, the corporate tax reduction. Uh, the, the opposition have suggested this is a $4.5 billion, or I think even $4.7 was, was claimed in the House yesterday. Um, is, is that number incorrect? Well, in 2019-20, in the year that we're currently in, uh, there will be um, a net effect of approximately $100 million reduction in taxes collected as a result of the job creation tax cut. Overall, over the uh, over the four, next four years, um, the reduced government revenues will be approximately $2.3 billion, less than, than uh, would have otherwise been the case um, had we not made the job, crash, uh, job creation tax cut. However, uh, the previous government implemented a 20% increase in corporate income taxes, and in the following three years, they collected $5.8 billion less in corporate taxes. Ultimately, our plan is to uh, ensure that we have a very competitive um, business tax rate in this province, along with other measures to improve our competitiveness. We're confident that will attract investment, create jobs and opportunities for Albertans, and in fact, result in greater government revenues down the road. All right. Minister, we'll leave it there. Appreciate making some time for us here this afternoon. Thanks for this. My pleasure. All right. Travis Taves, Alberta's Minister of Finance, President of the Treasury Board, talking about uh, uh, some aspects of the budget and some changes that the budget brings in. Now these two pieces of omnibus legislation bring in. I did want to get some clarity on the Alberta Lottery Fund because I've seen a lot of speculation in recent days that, well, if this fund is being canceled, what does that mean? There are all sorts of community organizations and charities that benefit from that. And I think that was one of the trade-offs. Remember two decades ago? There was a lot of debate, a lot of consternation around VLTs. Some communities held votes, plebiscites on whether to get rid of VLTs. And so this was part of the compromise then, right? That, well, we'll make sure that, that some of this revenue, that's not just going into government's pocket. that will go directly to community organizations and charities. So the minister says that will continue to be the case. We just won't have the fund. So I think we'll maybe need some clarity in in the days and weeks ahead as to exactly how this is all going to work. But he says, and you heard him say it, that these organizations who will benefit will still benefit from that money. It's just going to be handled differently. Uh, He made some points there about some of these tax changes. What do you make of the de-indexing? It's true that if your income stays exactly the same from one year to the next, your taxes will stay the same. But if your income goes up slightly because of inflation adjustments, you could be paying more taxes. That's called bracket creep. The Canadian Taxpayers Federation uh, today put a press release saying expert opposes hidden and regressive practice of failing to index tax brackets. That expert they're quoting is, in fact, Jason Kenney. who wrote a newspaper column way back in 1997, around the same time we were debating VLTs. That an interim step toward broad applied tax relief would be to end the hidden and regressive tax grab of bracket creep. Bracket creep pushes middle income earners into higher and higher tax brackets as their real income remains the same. For low and middle income families, bracket creep can suck enough money from the family budget to cause serious financial hardship. The Alberta government reintroduced bracket creep, though, in the budget of October 24th. The government estimates this will uh, cost taxpayers $600 million by the end of 2022, $300 million uh, in this budget. I mean, that, that, that is new revenue. That's new revenue coming from taxpayers. I mean, do we count that as a, a tax increase?
For all the talk of affordability, making life more affordable in the uh, recent federal election, um, the issue of supply management was strangely absent from the conversation. And one of the knocks on conservative leader Andrew Scheer that uh, this was an issue where there wasn't a lot of difference uh, between him and the other parties. And things like we've kind of moved on. But I don't think we should. This is a, a, a needless government intervention in the economy that means consumers pay more. There's a new study out from secondstreet.org uh, looking at the state of supply management in Canada, what it means for Canadian consumers. Using available data, finds that prices uh, across the country were higher in Canada, much higher for milk than in the United States, 29% more expensive. Joining us uh, for some further thoughts on all of this, very pleased to welcome the program policy analyst Mark Milkey, who is the author of this study. You can find it at secondstreet.org. Mark, thanks so much for joining us here. Welcome to the program. You bet. Thanks for having me on, Rob. All right. For people not familiar with supply management, explain how it works. Sure. Um, well, I mean, the, the simplest way to put it is it literally is uh, management of supply. The supply of uh, milk in the market is restricted. Um, dairy products in general, milk, cheese, other dairy products, and also poultry, though this, this study deals just with the question of milk. Uh, this is a policy that goes back uh, really to the 1960s and in some iterations back to the 1930s. Um, but the federal government limits supply uh, of milk in the marketplace. Uh, dairy producers are apportioned uh, the amount of milk that they can produce every year uh, by province. It's a complicated system, but that's basically what it comes down to. And milk from outside the country and cheese from outside the country is kept out uh, through a variety of measures, but one of them is simply high tariffs. So uh, dairy and poultry products have, have tariffs imposed on them from outside the country of between 200 and 300%. So, um, Maybe another way to think of it is what I called it a couple of years ago in a McLean's column I wrote. It's really dairy cow Marxism so or a cartel uh, for dairy producers. Uh, they don't like that, but uh, I tend to be non-Orwellian in my descriptions. No, and yeah, fair enough. I, I think for Canadians, I mean, especially, you know, in a place like Calgary, where we don't do a lot of cross-border shopping, we just see what we see on our own grocery shelves. We don't have maybe as clear a, a perspective when it comes to just how drastically different prices are for milk in Canada versus in the United States. So how do we go about quantifying what that difference is? Right. So what I did for the study is I looked at 30 cities, uh, a good chunk of American cities, about half, say, major cities, uh, half smaller towns near the Canadian border. And then on our side, the same thing, uh, major cities and, and uh, smaller cities, the smaller cities often uh, close to the border as well. And what I found was uh, the average price in the United States, and I looked at walmart.com, so you, know, you can go on there and find out the price of milk uh, for a quart down there. You convert all this to liters. You do the currency calculations. And what I found was there was uh, a dramatic range of prices down in the United States from 59 cents per liter in Milwaukee, which is kind of the home of the dairy industry in Wisconsin, so you'd expect perhaps lower prices, to about $1.37 in some border towns near St. Albans, Vermont, for example. But the average American price per liter in Canadian dollars was just over a buck, a dollar one. In Canada, 
uh, it's a dollar thirty uh, per liter. And to use a Calgary, Montana comparison, and you're right, we don't border shop because it's not worth our time to go drive three hours down down to the Montana border. But if you live in Vancouver, you'll go down to Bellingham. If you live in Windsor, you'll go to Detroit. But for us in Calgary, what I found was a dollar fourteen per liter was the price at a superstore up here. That was the comparison on the Canadian side. In Helena, Montana, at Walmart, 69 cents per liter. So almost half the price uh, in Helena versus what we pay in Calgary per liter of milk. And what about the accusation or the suggestion that, well, yes, Americans pay less for milk because the American government subsidizes dairy so much? Sure, they do. And uh, that's fine. I mean, one of the one of the interesting things about trade policy is if another country wants to subsidize a particular product, then the proper response to that is fill your boots. Uh, we'll buy your product and you can subsidize us um, because we'll buy your product at a cheaper price. So if American taxpayers want to continue that silly policy, uh, it's up to them, I guess, and their politicians to do so. On this side of the border, there's no point in continuing uh, what has been a great uh, policy for dairy farmers, um, although I'll explain in a moment why. Well, I think they're also disadvantaged by it, but uh, the average dairy farmer now in Canada is worth $4.3 million, and they're subsidized by consumers to the tune of 500 to $800 per family per year. So that's a lot of money, uh, even at the low end, over six years, it's $3,000 um, for a family of four, so <clears throat> to subsidize a $4.3 million dairy farmer. The other problem is this, actually. Uh, Australia had the same system or very similar to it that we have supply management and what they did years ago starting in 2000 is begin to reform their supply management system and move towards an, an open economy when it when it comes to dairy products milk and cheese and the rest of it they put on a tax of about 11 cents per liter starting in 2000 paid off the dairy farmers in essence but opened up open up the trade and uh, that dramatically expanded the uh, the market for Australian milk overseas, and now 40% of Australians' production in milk is shipped out, out of the country. So they've built a great export industry, and I find in this country we often get stuck on, you know, well, we need to protect some, and then, again, there's, there's necessarily no reason to do that, but we get stuck on what's happening here, and we don't think of the 37 million consumers who are subsidizing 13,000 dairy farmers, but the 13,000 dairy farmers don't take a big picture view around the world and think there's there's 1.3 billion consumers in China. There's there's what 1.1 billion I think in, in India these days. Mm-hmm. They don't take a big picture view like Australia does or New Zealand, uh, which is another example I can give you in a moment of, of how they successfully uh, sell their goods overseas, their dairy products overseas at a tremendous benefit to New Zealand farmers. Right, and so we do have examples of countries that have eliminated their versions of supply management, and so these kind of doomsday scenarios that we hear here, that, that's, that's not what happened in Australia and New Zealand. No, it's a bit like Uber. I mean, the taxi industry has been benefiting from a lack of competition for years, and when there's finally some competition, people say, well... Um, 
you know, you might want to subsidize this on the way out. Uh, I mean, I'm not a, a big fan of subsidizing people, you know, farmers or corporations or anyone, especially when they've benefited for years. But as a practical political matter, if that's what it takes to get rid of supply management over time, like Australia did for eight years, um, then that's one way to do it. In the case of Australia, like I said, they imposed a tax of 11 cents per liter back in 2000. Now, you'd think, I mean, it would stand a reason the prices go up, except they didn't. Because they opened up the market right away, prices per liter actually dropped 24 cents within the first year. Um, and then there was a little bit after that in the coming years, and then uh, stabilized, uh, dropped and stabilized around 2008 once they took off the 11 cents. But basically, consumers were better off. And as I mentioned a moment ago, so were dairy farmers, not so ironically, because now other countries said, well, okay, we'll accept your product into our market since there's a quid pro quo here that, uh, you know, you're not protecting your dairy market. We can try and uh, compete in your country, and now you can compete in ours. So consumers and, and uh and uh, producers both benefited in Australia. I mean, the payout to Australian farmers, for example, uh, averaged between 72,000 and 143,000 individual dairy farmers at the time, between 2000 and 2008. Um, basically, 1.7 billion Australian, 1.5 billion Canadian dollars were paid out to dairy farmers. Um, so that was the price consumers had to pay in the short term to get a better market in the long term. Um, but again, it even because of the competition, it even dropped prices right away. So consumers may not have noticed at all. Is it fair to compare the dairy side of the agriculture industry to, say, the beef side or the pork side or the barley side or the grain side? Because we have all kinds of sectors of, of agriculture that are not supply managed, that thrive, that export, that compete. What, why is it so different? Well, it's an historical anachronism, really, right, um, starting in the 1960s and, and uh, without getting into the, the deep, granular details of, of how it arose. I mean, supply management was was like many other sectors of the economy um, seen to be necessary for food supply, security of food supply, and the rest of it, uh, but also because of just the, the, the genre, the, uh, the beliefs at the time. I mean, you think back to the, the late or the early Pierre Trudeau days, elected in 1968, the liberal government of Pierre Trudeau, and then in the 1970s, I mean, Pierre Trudeau was enamored with uh, price controls and, and some such things. So um, supply management was just a, another example of that. Uh, the, the policy started to be formulated, as I mentioned, in the 1930s, but really the legislation was there ready to go in the late 1960s. Um, so I think part of it is a, a romance with, um, if I can put it that way, with dairy farmers. Uh, you often hear in response, well, you know, we need a secure supply of milk or, you know, our milk is health, healthy and safety. Yeah, but, but so are Wisconsin dairy farmers. They're not a to poison Canadian. So, uh, I mean, I think part of this is just um, propaganda on the part of the dairy sector. And I think they need to get past and I think they need to gain, think about the billions of consumers around the world they could be selling to and, frankly, could already have been selling to if they hadn't um, really been so focused on 37 million Canadians as opposed to 300 and some million Americans and billions of uh, people in East Asia, which may be more than willing to buy uh, dairy products. I mean, I was in Hong Kong about six years ago and talking with uh, you know, one of the representatives of, of Canada there at the time, who shall remain unnamed, but he mentioned to me, look, we've just had this scandal in China with uh, formula for children, and Chinese mothers are literally coming over the border to Hong 
Hong Kong to buy dairy formula in Hong Kong, which is produced in Australia and New Zealand. I can't remember which country it was, because it was seen as quality, unlike the Chinese variety in China. So that's what dairy farmers in this country are missing out on, opportunities. People can read this for themselves. It's up at secondstreet.org. Uh, Mark, thanks so much for making some time for us here this afternoon. Thank you, Rob. Much appreciated. Policy analyst Mark Milkey, uh, author of this study for the uh, group secondstreet.org. My Canadian prices, milk prices are much higher than in the U.S. Also let you know, by the way, Mark has got a new book coming out. It's called The Victim Cult, How the Culture of Blame Hurts Everyone and Wrecks Civilizations. Uh, that is, I believe, out soon or maybe even out now. Uh, and I do believe as well that he is going to be uh, speaking with Danielle about that book in the coming days. So stay tuned for, wor- for the word on that. Look, for everybody saying that the city of Calgary needs to get its house in order, they're absolutely right. Everybody's saying that the Alberta government needs to get its house in order, they're absolutely right. I don't think the Alberta government should be dumping its problems on the city of Calgary. I don't think the city of Calgary should be dumping its problems on the Alberta government. Get your own houses in order. Uh, for the city of Calgary, obviously, there's there's a real pressing need to address this because of the impact it's having on property taxes. I mean, provincial governments, I guess, have the luxury of borrowing to kind of gloss over their problems. Uh, the city's got to figure out how to balance all of this. So assessments are out of whack, spending's out of whack, and it's a big mess. And bearing the brunt of all of this, of course, has been small businesses, those outside the downtown core who have seen their property taxes soar in recent years to crushing levels to the point where many businesses are questioning whether they even have a future. And you think about how heartbreaking that is. It's not that people aren't coming to your business. It's not that you don't have sales. It's the property tax burden imposed by your municipal government. That could make or break your business. It should never be that way. I think businesses accept that, uh, you know, there's, there's regulations I got to abide by. There's taxes they have to pay, fees they have to pay. That's part of doing business. But if it gets to a point where it is so crushing that you can't continue as a business, then something is clearly broken. Owl's Nest Bookstore is an example of this. A business that's been around for some four decades in Calgary. You know, with all the changes and how we buy books, all the big players that have come and gone, Owl's Nest has, has continued to do well, carved out its, its own niche, it's very much uh, appreciated by, by book lovers in Calgary. So that's not the issue, but the issue for them is taxes. And they're to the point now where it cannot be business as usual for them. Fortunately, they're not yet at the point of closing their doors altogether, but there's going to be some pretty drastic changes at Owl's Nest Bookstore. Joining us to talk more about all of this is Susan Hare, co-owner of Owl's Nest Bookstore. Susan, thanks for joining us here. Welcome to the program. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Well, obviously, Owl's Nest going through the you know a lot of the same circumstances a lot of small businesses in Calgary are going through with the increasing tax burden. But, but what has it meant to, to your business, and, and what are the decisions you're now facing? Our business has had to try and absorb... Uh, more than quadruple increase in operating costs because of city property taxes. And it is no longer sustainable. And we've had to make the very difficult decision to downsize to 50% of our current format. So what's that going to mean? That means instead of having 20, 200 square feet, one side 
half of which is devoted to children's product and half to adult. We're going to be around a thousand square feet and merging both adult and children's product into that space. So it's going to be a big change then. Very big, yeah. Yeah. Uh, this has been kind of building for a few years. Uh, I was reading that uh, back in even 2015, uh, you were raising concerns with the city about the uh, increasing property tax burden back then, or, or at least uh, alerted your city councilor. So this is a situation that, that goes back a few years, but has it been getting worse year by year? Yes, it has. Uh, the city has raised taxes for business owners outside of the downtown core very steadily over the last four and five years. And the first shock was the most surprising because it went from a relatively manageable amount to more than double the amount in one year. Yeah. What has business been like over that over that time? It's been very good. Yeah. I... It, but we can't seem to make up that extra difference. Right. Yeah, because to me, I mean, that's what's so disheartening about what so many businesses have been going through. And I've been hearing from so many. They say, you know, the business is fine, um, but, you know, the tough decisions they have to make uh, don't don't stem from a lack of business. They stem from policy. They stem from, from tax changes. And, uh, you know, that, that should never be the result. A business shouldn't be forced to close because of of government decisions. So it's, yeah, I mean, that that's what, what you allude to. It's really unfortunate. It is. It's very much so. And we realize we're not the only business suffering this way. Right. Uh, it, it's certainly citywide. Mm-hmm. And I think there are statistics to show that the number of small businesses in Calgary have been closing at a very rapid rate over the last couple of years much higher rate than normal yeah well and i suppose that's that's the good news for now i I know for for fans and and customers of owl's nest is that owl's nest isn't closing but i that that could still happen right if we don't see some changes that's correct and we're really really not wanting to go that route we have been part of the reading community part of the whole structure of Calgary's community for the last 40 plus years, we'd very much like to stay part of that. Absolutely. Do you get a sense that that maybe now City Council finally is acknowledging the situation, that they are trying to do something about it? What's your sense of some of the decisions that are being made? I think the city is in an incredibly difficult position because Mm -hmm. they've just found out, of course, that a lot of the financing they depend upon has been taken away or reallocated elsewhere. And they're caught between two very, very difficult choices themselves. So as a small business owner, we just can't continue to carry the burden. Mm -hmm. That's all I'm, where my problem lies is that the city has very difficult choices to make. It's just that small business can no longer be the go-to source for that help. Yeah. Now, you have posted a, a letter to customers at uh, the website owlsnestbooks.com letting people know what's what's coming here. So when uh, are these changes going to occur? Well, we'll be... The, we'll be closing the doors to the children's side on December 31st. And the landlord will be renovating starting January 2nd. So by January 
second or so, most of the big changes will have occurred in that we'll be back to the half of the size we are. Well, hopefully this, this trend can reverse itself. In the meantime, Susan, all the best with this. Best of luck. And again, owlsnestbooks.com. Uh, much more there. Uh, thanks so much for making some time for us here this afternoon. Really appreciate Thank it. Thank you so much, Rob. Really appreciate your help. All right, there you go. Susan Nahair, co-owner of Owl's Nest Bookstore, you know, facing those tough choices that so many small businesses right now are, are facing. Do you shut down? Do you massively downsize? Do you look at moving out of Calgary even potentially? Uh, those are tough decisions. Uh, and, and just all the more heartbreaking if putting aside the tax bill, you see that your business is doing all right. You've got sales, you've got customers, but that other side keeps going up and up and up. Very frustrating. Nine seven four eight two five five. Quick break here. Back with more right after this. Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcast. You can also find me on Twitter at Rob Breckenridge. You can email me Rob at seven seventy chqr dot com. Talk to you next time. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge, starting at twelve thirty on News Talk seven seventy Calgary.